500 years. <laughs> well, hello there. It's Jeff Tell, and it's August 29th, 2017. Today I'm just reposting a, a cross post from another podcast that, that I was on. Uh, the Better Than Ordinary podcast called me out of the blue to see if I'd be a guest. And when I did my research for the company or the podcasters, uh, they seem to be associated with a educational software company called Seven Generations Games. They create games for the education industry, uh, selling to schools, and I very much thought that our conversation was going to be me as a, a sort of an education expert or a home education expert talking about the role of technology in helping children. So I did do some research on the company itself. Um, What I didn't realize is that the woman who would interview me is Anne Maria DeMars, who I had never heard of, but I didn't bother thinking that it was just sort of like a corporate placement type uh, podcast, you know, used to sort of promote products uh, that the CEO would be uh, anything that would interest me. Anyways, but she turns out to be quite interesting. Um, uh, Amaria DeMars is an American technology executive, author, and judoka, which is a judo practitioner. She is the first American to win a gold medal at the World Judo Championships, completing, uh, competing in the 56-kilogram weight class for the 1984 World Judo Tournament. DeMars is the chief executive officer of Seven Generation Games and the Julia Group, as well as a statistical consultant and Native American activist, having authored grants for various Native American programs. And so if you want to know... Um, Seven Generation Games, the Seven Generations, refers to an Indian or Native American concept of, uh, of many generations. Uh, before she launched this new company, she was vice president of Spirit Lake Consulting, a tribal institute based on the Spirit Lake Tribe Indian Reservation, uh, where she was actively involved in the tribe's education and vocational re- rehabilitation programs. Um, in 2013, DeMars was named Forbes' annual list of 40 women, woman, 40 women to watch over 40, uh, recognizing the accomplishments and backgrounds of women who are making major professional contributions after the age of 40 in the fields of innovation and disruption. And this, this part, um, I'm reading from Wikipedia, because uh, as I go through this interview, I don't realize that, that I'm talking to someone who uh, not only homeschooled her children, but homeschooled a very famous child. Uh, DeMars is the mother of Ronda Rousey, an Olympic bronze medalist, judoka, and former mixed martial arts bantamweight world champion. Um, And if you know Ronda Rousey, she was about a year ago or two years ago, she had won just tons and tons of fights and now is a semi-famous actress. Well, it turns out that she herself um, was homeschooled partway through. Uh, It turned out actually her sister was pulled out of school uh, for different reasons. And then once they realized they could homeschool, uh, Rhonda was also uh, dropped out of high school and was home educated. So anyways, uh, I wish I would have researched the person because then I think it would have been a much better conversation than we actually had. I don't think I really turned in a great performance. And if you've already heard my stuff on homeschooling, either through the very first podcast or the two 
that I reposted when I was on School Sucks Project or the one with Danilo uh, or the more recent series on de-schooling or even the schools for poor people, you're really not going to hear too much new stuff in this one, but I still wanted to put it up there uh, just in case um, anyone did want to hear me speak about school again. So here we go. Here's me and Anne Maria DeMars on the More Than Ordinary podcast. Life can be an extraordinary adventure. More than ordinary. In the gym. At home. At work. More than ordinary. Advice. Without the new agey bullshit. Welcome to More Than Ordinary, brought to you by Seven Generation Games. I'm Anne-Maria DeMars, and today we do not have Maria Burns-Ortiz with us because she sadly had to be away for a funeral. But we do have an amazing guest, Jeff Till from South Carolina, who is an author. He wrote the book, Rise Above School, Making the Critical Decision to Abandon School and Embrace Home Education. He's also a blogger, a podcaster, and president of a marketing company. Thank you for being here with us, first of all, Jeff. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This is this is great. So I wanted to dive right in. I, I've been stalking you on the internet, which we normally do with our guests, just so anybody who's going to be a guest in the future is aware, and read some of your blog posts, some by your colleague, Nikki. And I was really interested in some of the topics that you brought up. I have taught math at every level from middle school through doctoral students, and I also have raised four children who are now all out of the public, well, actually only one of them was ever in the public school system, but they're all out of school. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that you brought up that I thought was really true was about grades, where it, it was on your blog, it was by Nikki, but I think not to put words in your mouth, but I think you probably agree with it, that she gave the example of teaching her son to ride his bike and how sometimes he fell off. And if that was a a school subject, he would be getting Fs the time he fell off. And sometimes he didn't want to do it. And in the end, he learned to ride his bike, but later than she thought it would take. And she said, you know, if I was going to give him a grade, I'd give him a 69%. And I thought that was pretty funny because we teach kids to read and we teach them to spell and to do math, all in the assumption that... Everybody's supposed to do it the same way, at the same time, at the same rate. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. So I wanted to know, because I actually graduated from a high school that did not have grades. It was a non-public school, and I wouldn't say graduated. Another thing that you had written about was kids who are homeschooled not having to take the whole 13 years and going to college early. And I went to an alternative school, and I did exactly that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people said, how can you keep kids motivated if you don't have grades? Or how can you get into college if you don't have grades? How do the the colleges evaluate you? So how do you respond to those people? The external validation and credentialing purpose of school, I don't think is going to be very important in the future. It's really a path to chase ordinary or to, you know, chase being average is to you know, try to comply with with getting grades and then, you know, getting into uh, university and getting a degree there. You know, those are becoming more and more uh, commodity products. And they're also putting, you know, people into huge amounts of debt and not really guaranteeing neither self-actualization or a love of learning or an ability to adapt. So I I just see grades as, as being just an artificial motivation to learn when really, when we're born, when we're kids, we have this passion to learn. We have this you know, raging appetite to learn. And it's 
it's never these, this external motivation that really makes people love learning and have an appetite for it. It has to be intrinsically motivated. It has to come from within. And most people who, who suffer through grades, they forget a lot of what they learn anyways because they never really learned for the, you know, the purpose of making themselves better or because it made them happy or because they knew it would give them certain results. They did it to meet the expectations of a parent or a teacher or an administrator. So I, I really, I mean, I, I sort of personally just hate the whole idea of grades. There's almost no other activity or service that you would purchase where if you went to a restaurant and you were seeking to have the most delicious meal that you could have, it would be you explaining to the chef what, you know, what they did wrong. It would never be the chef coming to you and giving you a grade on how well you ate. So I, I just find grades to be completely backwards in that way. I understand where they came from and that people wanted to be able to validate that that knowledge was being transferred, but I just don't really think it's necessary. Does does that make sense? It does. And as a a teacher and now a professor, I I also see sometimes that sets up a sort of antagonistic relationship between the student and the teacher because I have students come in and they need to get a certain grade to keep their scholarship and they need to get a grade in this class so they can graduate. But the fact is, sometimes, I mean, I teach things like advanced multivariate statistics. They have zero interest in learning that. They don't want to learn it. They're there because it's required in their Mm -hmm. program. They have to be there. And so there's things like plagiarism where someone will just wholesale copy and paste articles. There's situations where people pay to have their term papers written. And you wouldn't do that if what you cared about was the learning. And I've had students just tell me that flat to my face. And these are doctoral students. I don't care if I learn this at all. I just want to get this piece of paper so I can go and get this specific job. And mm-hmm. I think you are. Yeah. And I was just going to say, there are probably still fields like engineering and medicine where this, the reality of, of our modern world is that you're going to need credentials to pursue those careers. But for 98% of the rest of us, our jobs or our, the things that we do that require knowledge are, are going to be much more subjective and much more based on our own abilities and desire to learn, not necessarily on our ability to you know, meet a standard or meet some other kind of external validation, in my opinion. But I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, that, no, that's fine. I, I was just going to say, I think people who were intrinsically interested in learning wouldn't be doing things like plagiarizing. They wouldn't be trying to yeah, absolutely. get someone else to write their paper because it wouldn't help them. But they're looking at education as a credential. Though, when you're talking about what's important is what you know, and even in engineering, when I mean, we do software development here, right? We make educational video games. Mm-hmm. And what we're interested in is can you write code? Can you actually edit sound? Can you actually edit video? Can you actually you know, make decent art using a two, you know, 2D or 3D program. But one thing that I think can be an issue for that credential is getting into somewhere where you can prove yourself often requires knowing someone. And there's a lot of research mm-hmm. in social psychology that shows, say, and whether it's male versus female, black versus white, if you send in a identical resume and it's got Martha Washington or George Washington, George is going to get called in for more interviews. And if you put George has, say, a bachelor's degree, but Martha has experience, George is going to get called in for more interviews because they won't say, oh, it's not that you know we, we don't want women, but George had a degree and she didn't. But if you flip those credentials, so now Martha has the degree and George has experience, George is still going to get called in for more interviews. Oh, it's not because we wanted the degree. 
it's because he had experience. So what do you say to those people that say, okay, it's easy for you to say that, but I'm an immigrant, I'm Hispanic, I'm black, I'm female, and I need every credential I can get to get in the door? Well, a couple of things. So I, I've recently, I might get to your answer around the long way. I recently had three open hires that I had to do this year for my company. And I reviewed 1,412 resumes over the past four months. And if you ever want to have a more depressing view of humanity, try to do this when you post a job on Indeed and just see how many uninteresting, uninspired applications there are, which mostly, and I would have to say there was probably only four in the whole pile where someone didn't have a graduate degree or, you know, had, at least had their undergrad, some college. So already, uh, you know, the, the market's flooded with this very vanilla signal of a college degree, of an education. It differentiated just about nobody. Yeah, like your business, I'm most concerned with employees who can demonstrate their skills. So we do a lot of graphics and we do writing. Um, so when we hire people, we actually have them do sample projects and we don't actually look at necessarily to their resume so much or their degree. We see what they can actually do. And now um, with the internet, there's never been a time where people can demonstrate their skills and their personality and their identity more. So the cost of doing things like podcasting or blogging or setting up your own website or even your social media profile or your Amazon reviews, there's these huge trails that young people can make now that are probably much more powerful signals than the college degree. And so the people who are going to differentiate themselves, I, I think, can do so in these, these sort of alternative ways. And I think employers, especially as the older generation retires and the younger people you know, enter management and hiring roles, are going to see that, are going to undervalue the formal education and are going to highlight you know, skills attainment. And it's not going to be for everybody. It's not going to be in every industry. If you still want to work at Fidelity Investments, there's, there's going to be probably a pretty hard and accredited path. But for a lot of the world, we, we don't have to do that anymore. And if we go back to the, the homeschooling, if, if you actually value being in charge of, of your own life, being in charge of your, your schedule, being in charge of your happiness, I think that those kind of people are going to be more on the trajectory to be able to demonstrate their skills than the people who are more interested in going to school and trying to conform and try to chase ordinary and you said so a lot of things in your writing that made perfect sense about issues with schools. And I wondered why schools didn't just change some of these things. For example, well, you mentioned the hours. People always laugh when I say this, but it's totally true. I love teaching middle school. I think middle school kids are great. People say, oh, I couldn't deal with them. No, they're, they're fun. They're just like when little toddlers are learning to walk mm -hmm. and they're try, or when little kids are learning to, to talk and they say no to you all the time because they figured out they can do it. You know, middle school kids are starting to argue. They're starting to have their own ideas. They're starting to decide who they are. And I love math. And I taught math to middle school kids. And the main reason that I will never go back to teaching math is I hate getting up in the morning. Anybody in the office can tell you I'm rarely mm -hmm. here before 10 a.m. <laughs> and you know, friends of mine that are teachers get up at 5.30, 6 in the morning. And I'm never going to do it because now I'm an adult and I don't have to. And <laughs> I have other options. I just can't understand the number of middle school kids, high school kids that I see dragging themselves in every day that are barely awake in their first period. Why is it only the alternative schools that, you know, have the option of starting at 10 a.m.? Why is there no middle school that I've found in America that starts, you know, goes from 10 to 4, 10 to 4.30? Because I would teach there maybe. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the school apparatus is old technology. You know, it was invented about 150, 170 years ago. It was mostly sort of a social engineering project. When the, the Prussians first invented it, they were looking to make more loyal soldiers for their armies. And then later, Horace Mann brought it over to the United States, where he saw it as an opportunity to create good citizens and good consumers and good factory workers. And so the, the entire thing of school has been set up to sort of emulate what a good factory worker would have to do. So you're, you come in very early, you're told what to do, what task to do, you're told in repeatable tasks, you know, sit still, you know, you have to raise your hand and ask permission to use the bathroom or get a drink of water. You know, a bell goes off and you're told when to uh, go spend 45 minutes eating lunch and then the bell rings again. And it's all, you know, very much this sort of factory approach to education and it never seems to change. Just even the idea of putting 30 kids all about the same age into the same subjects and having just 45 minutes periods uh, using the lecture system, you know, which was probably very valuable to have back when Socrates was teaching his students. But now you don't necessarily need one person in front of a room repeating the same messages over and over again. So it's the inability. And I don't know who would advocate to say, like, this is absolutely horrible that we're having these kids get on the bus at, you know, 610 in the morning before the sun even rises. Not even thinking about, besides them being exhausted and tired, what it does to family life. The whole parent-child interaction is, hey, wake up. I know you want to sleep now, but, you know, get up, hurry up, you know, eat breakfast, grab your books, get on the bus. And then, you know, after school, people are shuffling their kids to, you know, to soccer practice or to violin lessons, having a, a rush dinner, and then homework, and then get to bed. It becomes a very unhappy family situation as well to have just be running this treadmill every single day where you're constantly just hoping for those little tiny scraps of free time but you don't actually get them because the whole day is so structured so i, I don't know why they change i don't know why to, to be honest when i tell people we don't have bedtimes we don't have time to get up we don't have those schedules they think i'm insane they think i'm insane anyways just for not not sending my kids to school to me now that I'm outside of that public school system, I did send my daughter to uh, public school for three years. It just seems like wholesale insanity to me. It seems almost like prison. And it's not just prison for the kids, but it's like prison for the family. I would love schools to have a lot more options. You know, I think if school wasn't compulsory in nature, funded in the way it is, that we might have tens or hundreds of different type of models for school. Sometimes it wouldn't just be homeschooling or unschooling like we do. But there would be alternative schools that have different hours. There would be schools that are more, kids don't sit around all day, but they move and build things. There might be schools that are very technology focused. All of these options are sort of wiped out from the market because 90% of kids are currently in the compulsory government school system. So the markets really can't emerge for these other alternatives. I would imagine even your educational software might even, I don't know how much penetration you have into school systems. But there's probably less education dollars going to innovative programs like educational games. What's your feeling? How have you seen? What I've found is even really good teachers are just so busy. And they're busy because they have too many kids in a classroom. They have a lot of issues to deal with in addition to kids in the classroom. They have to go to so many professional development hours or that student has mm -hmm. emotional problems and they need to meet with the parent and talk to them about it. Or this student has some kind of disability and they need to go to a meeting about that. And so often what happens is I'll talk to teachers and say, oh my gosh, we looked at your games and they're great. And we did this workshop you know, at our district. And it was great. But then I'll see them several months later and say, well, how is it working? 
well, you know, I got to school and I would have had to install them all on the computers and I couldn't find the person from IT and nobody had the password. And so even teachers who really want to use the games often have to go through three or four levels of approval. And even when they get those levels of approval, then they have to say, find the person at the district level who will let our games through their firewall or find the person with the password. Mm -hmm. So any kind of innovation, even if like in our case, there's data documenting that kids who play improve their math scores and so on, is really hard because you have this huge inertia. And it's not that teachers are lazy or not interested. It's that there's barriers in their way. I mean, the degree to which the average teacher's hands are tied and instilling technology in a lot of school districts, it would drive me insane. You can't install anything on your own computer. You have to go find this one specific person to come install everything. You have to get permission to you know, change anything. I understand that in some cases they're worried about viruses, they're worried about you know, damage to the, the computers. But if you trust this person with 30 children day in and day out, can't you trust them with a computer? <laughs> it's crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, well, the, my daughter, when she was in public school up until third grade, so I have, I've just, so you know, I have, I have three kids. I have a 12-year-old girl, nine-year-old boy, and a six-year-old uh, girl, all three unschooled right now. But computer use, when she was in elementary school, was half hour per week. It was called technology, and they went to a different room. And now, you know, when I look at my kids, they spend a lot more than half hour a week on their computers. They, it's, you know, sometimes five to six hours per day, which is actually, when you think about when you're preparing kids for what modern life will be like, if, if to what extent school is supposed to be a function of preparing you to, uh, you know, eventually be a functioning adult. Computers are part of everybody's job. It's kind of absurd that uh, schools aren't embracing computer technology, even just at that practical level, not to mention just the opportunities that they would have. The teachers are also tied down to having to give a lot of attention to the lagging students and tend to probably just ignore the high-performing students. You know, they might be shifted off to uh, their gifted and talented class, but they the, the teacher has to prioritize your time basically on a, on a segment of those 30 kids who need the extra help. How could technology help this? You know, how could technology help more proficient kids, you know, a zoom ahead if they wanted to? There would be all sorts of wonderful opportunities there. You know, I only see this trend sort of getting worse as the standardized testing trends continue and things from become more standardized where they have to, to, in order to chase funds, you know, they're going to have to be teaching to the test. None of that, if you're constantly having to prepare these kids to to take the standardized test to get the funding for your school, no creative or interesting idea is probably going to enter the mix. You know, there just won't be enough time to both teach to the test and then let kids unleash, you know, their creative energies using fun software on a computer. I, I just don't see them going together. You know, as, as much as we can take the sunniest and most optimistic view of our smart and compassionate teachers. They, even the best of them, are going to have a horrible time getting new modes of education through, I think. Well, it's funny you say that because I was just, when I was flying back this last night, going through the tests that we use to show that our games work. So the kids don't have to take them, but it's an option. The teachers can have them do them. They can have them you know, do a pretest and at the end of the semester do a post-test. And we aligned them with the state standardized test because mm. we oh, wanted to have to show that these were the same items that the teachers were teaching in school, right? And as I was going through, there were some of them I just thought, this is too stupid. I'm taking this out. I'll give you a couple examples. One was like multiplying a two-digit number by a three-digit number in your head with no calculator. 
why? I mean, everybody has a cell phone in their pocket. I mean, yeah, you probably need to multiply four times six. And you should probably be able to get a percent of, you know, 100 so you could figure out mm-hmm. a tip or something like that. But why do you need to multiply large numbers in your head? And I just thought, you know what? I'm going to redo this. I'm going to put a calculator on that because that's what everybody's going to do. So I'm going to put a calculator widget in there. Yeah, and I don't well, care what's on the I'm, test. <laughs> I'm 46 years old. So when I went to school, they told us that we wouldn't always have a calculator with us. It was sort of the... Uh, the line to set us straight for why we couldn't use calculators. And of course, it turned out to be just the opposite, that everybody does have a calculator on them all the time. Right. I mean, I specialized in statistics for my PhD. And yes, when I was actually in graduate school, calculators were really expensive. So I didn't have one until probably the last year of my PhD program. And I thought it was the greatest thing ever, because instead of spending you know half a day inverting matrices and computing multiple regression equations by hand, I could plug it into the calculator, have it done right away, see if there was an error, you know, analyze my logic. So yes, there were, in fact, out of 30 questions, there were three that I just said, this is too stupid. There was one, and I'll, and I'll tell you, it's like, there was a question about you spent this many days doing this out of the month and this many days doing this and this many doing that. And it's like, write the answer as a fraction equation. Like who even uses the term fraction equation? I've never, there's some certain things that I never ran into except on those standardized tests. And I finally just said, you know what? We can't put everything in our games. So anything that when I talk to teachers, when I look at kids, you know, which we spend a lot of time going around and watching kids everywhere from at their house to the library, to schools, playing games. And if this is difficult or if this doesn't make sense, I'm going to just change it. And I have the freedom to Mm -hmm. do that because we're a private company, but- if we were under the school district, I think a lot of teachers do that. They just don't admit it. Mm-hmm. How much, just your opinion, um, being in advanced mathematics, how much or what type of math do, do you think every children should learn, including the kids who aren't interested in math and, and are probably going to be pursuing a, a STEM-like career? Everybody needs to know to multiply, divide, add, subtract. Everybody needs a certain idea of numbers. And I'll give you an example of this. I run into a lot of kids Mm -hmm. around the country. They're going to be a professional athlete. That's their thing. They're going to be a professional athlete. Well, my daughter's a professional athlete, and she made a good bit of money. And the reason that she doesn't need to work when a lot of her peers do is because she was very good at math. And when she looked at contracts, now she didn't go into STEM. She punches people in the face for a living, and now she coaches on Battle of the Network Stars every Thursday, right? But- When she looks at a contract, Mm -hmm. she's able to see if getting a percentage is a better deal than getting a flat rate. You know, she's able to not get cheated. So I think unless you have some idea of percentage and decimals and fractions, that kind of stuff, you're going to be wandering in the fog and sort of the prey for a lot of predatory lending practices and other practices. So I think everybody needs some understanding of basic math, and I mean basic all the way up into like some kind of simple algebraic equation that I can figure out if getting a percentage as opposed to a flat rate is a better deal. The other thing I think as mm-hmm. okay. citizens, we need some understanding of statistics. So you need, to, you need to be able to understand if you're getting screwed as an individual, you need to understand if you're getting screwed as a country. You need to listen to things in the media. When somebody said, oh, and it was ridiculous, having transgender people in the military is going to cost us $3 trillion a year. There's no possible way. You know? But <laughs> 
yeah, this I, I can't imagine that micro population, which probably is what point zero zero one percent of all people, right, if but, even that. But you have some basic understanding of math, so I think like we expect literacy that you should be able to read a book and understand it. You should be able to read a contract and understand it. That there should be some basic level of numeracy. So you don't need to be able to find a derivative or an integral, but you should know that the median income is a better choice than the mean income because the median is half the people make below that and the mean income is really skewed by billionaires. You should know some basic stuff. By the time you get out of high school, I think everybody should know that and we would all be better off as a society if we had that basic level. Sure. And do you think the current schooling system actually meets that goal fairly well? When I, what I hear in the news, I'm very skeptical that it's not, you know, it's preparing even basic mathematic literacy. I can guarantee you because we have a lot of data on a lot of schools, that there is a vast inequality in this country. So most of the students who attend schools in lower-income communities, whether on American Indian Reservation or in an inner city, say in Los Angeles, are Mm -hmm. years below grade level. And that's not to say there aren't some brilliant students in those schools who are far above grade level, but the vast majority, it is not uncommon for me to go into a school where 90% or more of the students, maybe even 100%, will be below their stated grade level, where the kids in schools, like my daughters all went to private Catholic schools, and they all went to college prep schools. And I would go into schools where the kids were doing three or four years below what my kids were doing in math. And I could tell you, my youngest one is majoring in creative writing, which makes me assume she never wants to get a job, but she's you know, a college, going into her sophomore year of college. The oldest one was a journalism major. The second one was a history teacher. And so math was not particularly their area of interest. It was only the third one was really interested in math. But they all went at least through cal- up to calculus. I think two out of the four, you know, A got at least an A or B in calculus, and I think the other two did up to calculus and then took statistics. They did that because every student in their school was required to do it. And they graduated with a certain basic understanding Mm -hmm. of mathematics. I mean, Maria doesn't particularly like math, but she can, you know, read a cap table and she can do a five-year projection for a company. But many of the schools that I go to in lower-income areas, you'll find a whole bunch of high school kids who can't figure what's 40% of 25. So it's vastly different. Interesting. Yeah. We'll be right back after this. You know those ads where they say, for less than a cup of coffee, you could? Yeah, this is kind of one of those. For just $1, you can get the first two games of our upcoming Aztec game series. All you have to do is go and back our Kickstarter. 7generationgames.com slash Kickstarter. Seriously, $1, which leaves you plenty of money to still buy that cup of coffee after you've backed our Kickstarter. Then you'll have coffee, our cool games, and our eternal appreciation. It's an awesome trifecta. That's sevengenerationgamescom slash Kickstarter. Welcome back to More Than Ordinary, brought to you by Seven Generation Games. I'm still Anne-Marie DeMars, and we still have with us our amazing guest, Jeff Till, author, blogger, president, father. I probably left out some other things, but he's really amazing, and you should check on our website. In the show notes, you can see a link to his book on rising above schooling. So now we have talked a little bit about all the reasons people want to homeschool. And I homeschooled two of my kids, Rhonda, when she was in elementary school, partly for some of the reasons you talk about bullying. It wasn't so much bullying. I mean, Rhonda can hold her own in a fight, but she just 
hated it. You know, we moved here from North Dakota. She kind of had a North Dakota accent. She was a skinny little blonde kid in a school that's 85% Latino. And yes, my family's Hispanic, but she took after the Polish genes on her dad's side, let me tell you. She would just beg and beg and beg, Mom, I hate school. Don't make me go. Don't make me go. So I finally thought, you know mm-hmm. what? Screw it. I have a PhD. You know, she can stay home. And, and she did. She stayed home for half of the year and read a lot of books and did some math and learned a lot of stuff. And then the next year, she went to a magnet school for kids in science. And then in high school, she was training for the Olympics and she was gone all the time. And kind of, I think you'll appreciate this, kind of the last straw is they told her she couldn't leave school to go to the Pan American Junior Championships because she would miss an exam in Spanish. And she was going to Venezuela. Mm. So, so I I took her out of school and um, homeschooled her. And then her sister said, well, how come she doesn't have to go to school? If you're homeschooling her, why can't you homeschool me too? And I had no answer to that. So then I took her out of high school also. That's a great story. I always, and this is going to be my my tip for later, but when I was making the decision to homeschool, I had spent a year doing sort of intellectual research, reading lots of books that were either critical of public schooling or were advocating homeschooling. And I formed this very complete mental case for why we should do it, but I, I still just couldn't pull the trigger and pull my kids out of school because it was something, you know, I was schooled myself. My wife went to school and then, you know, university. All of our neighbors, all of our family were automatically went into this environment. When my daughter was five years old, we didn't sit and think about what we were going to do. It's just like, well, she's five years old. We put her on the bus to the school that's closest to our house. There was absolutely no thought into this, even though it's it's a 15,000 hour decision to put your kids into school. It's 15,000 hours of their time. Even that's just K through 12. But I still, even though I, I saw that school wasn't the best way to build the love of learning, it wasn't the best use of time, it didn't give you freedom, it didn't give you flexibility and when to, to be out of school or to take vacation or to, to sleep in or, you know, I saw how it created obedience and conformity, constant surveillance. It wasn't until I put the kids into my shoes, until I felt sort of empathetic towards them. It's like, would I feel good if I was made to do this? Would I do this to myself? If I could put myself back as a child, would I want to do this experience? And once I was able to have empathy for them, the decision became very much easier. Once we could make the intellectual case is pretty easy to make. And I can give the intellectual case to almost anybody. And they were like, oh, yeah, this seems like the right thing to do. But the emotional case is what usually is missing. That's sort of the point of Rise Above School, the book, if people are interested. It's all about making the decision. And so there's a big part we have uh, in the book is 58 cases to do it based on everything from how people learn to what they might think of military service to how they spend their free time. But then it also talks about making the emotional case where you're like, this is, I wouldn't do this to myself. I'm not going to treat my children this way. I was the opposite of you. I hated school. It's, it's funny because I, I have a PhD and two master's degrees, but I hated school all the way up to college. I loved college, but I got kicked out of school. I was expelled from the public school system back when I'm older than you. So I got expelled from middle school because they back then would give you swats and the vice principal told me to bend over and he was going to hit me with a paddle. And I said, if you hit me, I'll hit you back. And he told me to come back when I was ready to be hit. And I have yet to return because I'm still not ready. <laughs> So then I went to a high school that did not have grades, that it had, I wouldn't say exactly flexible hours, but let me just say I never got there at 8 a.m. 
uh, there may have been classes at 8 a.m., but I never took one. And we did projects. So things like I did, mm-hmm. and I still remember, yeah. and I, it's been many years since I was in high school, I, I did a genetics product, project on learning patterns in mice. I did a math project on writing a computer program to draw the face of Mickey Mouse, which actually, you know, takes a number of learning about equations. I took matrix algebra. So I kind of had a very alternative school experience. And the Catholic school that I was in, well, all the schools I was in, were exactly like you described. And I hated every second of them. So it was really a hard decision for me to send my kids to school. So it was kind of the opposite of you. But here's some of the objections that I was thinking about that people would have. You have the the freedom to stay with your kids and spend time with them. If you had a nine to five job and your wife had a nine to five job, how would you go about unschooling or homeschooling a six year old? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't you probably can't do it in that situation, not without hiring a nanny or something. So unfortunately, you know, that's and I'm not sure why our society, our, our American society has sort of grown this way over the past 50 years because it was much more common to have a, at least one parent who stayed at home full time. And then sometime it seemed in the either the late 60s or 70s became very important to sort of double the workforce by sending all the mothers into, into full time jobs. Right now, I think homeschooling, besides having to be a little bit crazy, like have something sort of explode in your mind, it's usually either the Christians or the, the hippies or the anarchists who are in the forefront of doing this. It's also going to be rich people, I think, who are, are going to be doing this more and more often. And those are going to be people who purposely set up their lives so that they have resources at home. And how that has to work now is with some people, they have to consume less or they have to be poorer than they would like to be and have one parent stay at home with the kids. Other people are learning now, especially with telecommuting, how can I create an income from the house that sustains us and so I can still be with my kids? It's not easy. It's not just because I I think it's a good idea that I think everyone's going to be able to suddenly pull their kids out of school and do it. That also is a sort of a source of great sadness for me, too, that a lot of kids have to go through this without the sort of philosophical or the intellectual or the emotional justification for doing it. You know, they're being put in here because they need babysitting services because mom and dad have to work all the time. That's exactly it. And I think you you make a really good point. I mean, there's there's a, a fairly sized homeschooling group on in Santa Monica, where I live, basically on the yuppie west side. And it's people who have money who live in Santa Monica and Malibu and the Palisades. And when Rhonda was young, we went to some of their activities. But I think what they didn't realize, some of them, this is a luxury and a privilege. There are a lot of people in this country who are barely, barely getting by. And both those parents are working at minimum wage so their kids can eat. Like when Rhonda was in the fifth grade, I took her with me. Like when I go to DC, I don't have a four hour work week like you. So I travel a lot and I work a lot. But we went to DC. She went to the Smithsonian. You know, when I was not meeting, she got Mm -hmm. to go to the Key Bridge and just see a lot of things that she wouldn't have seen if she stayed in the regular fifth grade. And those are the kind of things that you can do with your kids when they're homeschooled. And I'm, she's 30 years old and she still remembers those things and talks about them. But I couldn't have done that with her when she was six because when she was 11, I could take her with me. And if I had to go to a meeting in the hotel, she could stay upstairs in the room and read her whatever book she was reading. Animorphs was the series she was into at the time. While I was down at a meeting and if she needed anything, she could call me on my cell phone. But I couldn't do that with a six-year-old. So it seems to me that still in this country, homeschooling, at least for young children, 
is going to be a luxury for some families. Yeah, uh, but this this can all change as well. Right now, it's only 3% of kids are homeschooled. About 7% are in private school, and then the other 90% are in uh, government school. If that number were suddenly to be 10% or 20%, then I think a lot of alternative type models would, would start appearing. So you might have, even if you're a family that has is low income with two working parents, there might all of a sudden be affordable options in your neighborhood where another mother is able to take a day off and watch over four or five families' children, even if they're young, even if they're six or seven. And then, you know, sort of round robin, passing the kids back and forth. There might be, you know, less expensive things that are still school-like. There are buildings with different resources in them that have adults to watch over. That may not be beyond the expense. Everyone's already paying for the public school system as it is. You pay through your, typically, you know, through your property taxes, and you pay it for about 60 years, depending on how long you live. So we're currently paying for, I get to double pay. For me, I get, you know, I spend my my personal resources on homeschooling my children, but I also pay into the public school system. And I'll do that from the age of 22, whenever I start renting my place until I die. So, you know, there's a tremendous amount of money wrapped up into the public system, which maybe things changed a bit. If these resources could somehow be reallocated to the alternatives, or if some of these homeschooling parents didn't have to pay into the public system for, for 60 years, maybe there's more options. And homeschooling wouldn't just be something for rich people. Well, and I know this sounds anti-American to some people when I say it, but all of my kids went to private schools from kindergarten through high school, and they all went to private universities. And I have friends that say, oh my gosh, you know, I wish I could have afforded to send my kid to NYU. I wish I could have afforded to send my kid to USC. And we went without a lot of stuff to afford that. I mean, we're not like living in a box behind the grocery store, but (laughs) we have one car. We didn't buy a new car every year. We live in a three-bedroom townhouse. We don't have a huge house with acres of land. You know, there's a lot of things. A lot of my friends say, well, why don't you move to Malibu? Well, because then it would cost us a ton more money, and we wanted to spend the money on our kids' education. And that's a choice you can make. Yeah. And you can actually have less stuff. And not have the newest car, not have the biggest house. And when I say that to people, sometimes they kind of look at me funny and kind of whisper, are you a communist? <laughs> yeah. Well, some people argue that actually schooling is is sort of partly to create citizen, worker, and consumers. So even, even the typical consumption pattern that most people just sort of adopt, wanting to have two cars that are new and, and to maximize the amount of square footage in their homes and to own certain brands of things. You know, a lot of that is taught and a lot of that's finding personal satisfaction from external externalities, from external things. But a lot of that's sort of reinforced in, in the school system itself. So that's sort of a different point than what you were just discussing. But the, the expectations that were rabid consumers is often set up through this very system of schooling to begin with. We'll be right back after this. Irma the intern here. I grew up in a household where my parents are bilingual, but to be honest, my Spanish isn't as good as I'd like. That's why I love Aztec Games, because it's helping me improve my Spanish as well as brush up on math and history. And that's why I'm backing it on Kickstarter. You should too. Just go to 7generationgames.com slash kickstarter today. For as little as $1, $1 you can get Aztec Games and get better at Spanish or math or history or gaming. Aztec Games on Kickstarter. Back it today. I have now one question that I really do have. So some of these questions, like, ah, well, I homeschool my kids and it was not a big issue. But 
The one thing I really do worry, wonder about is when I go and watch kids that are not being supervised, like go watch them in the library or watch them at home, and what they choose to do is often not what I would consider very educational. So, for example, I was watching a group of kids in a public computer lab not long ago, and they all three came in, and they sat down, and they were playing games where they're running around and jumping over things. And and we're not going to lie here, okay? You, you All kinds of people say, oh, well, they're learning coding. They're learning, like, conditional logic. No, they're not. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's fine. They're kids. They're playing. It's summer. But what do you say to those people that say that schooling teaches kids about the real world, that sometimes you have to do stuff that isn't exactly what you want to do. I mean, I love my job. I love the work I do. I think it's important. But sometimes I have to sit down and, I don't know, write up some report that I don't think is interesting at all. I have to work with the accountant and doing the taxes. What do you say to people that say, yeah, unschooling, homeschooling, it sounds great, but kids have to learn math, even if they don't want to. They, in my case... Yeah, they have to learn how to be bored. They have to learn how to suffer. They have to learn how to be miserable. I, none of those arguments I, I find very appealing because I wouldn't apply them to myself. Yeah, I mean, I have to do things that I don't enjoy either. I have to talk to clients and I have to you know, hire my employees or, or do collections or whatever. But I, I don't think I, would, I needed 15,000 hours of preparation to manage the boring parts of life. And the best we can is, is we want to try to mitigate those anyways. So someone who is intolerant of being bored or intolerant of being unhappy is probably going to seek situations where they are more happy and less bored. And that's sort of been this trajectory of my recent life where I restructured my business so I only had to work a few hours a week. I took my kids out of school so that we could you know, be together. You know, I made sure my wife didn't have to work. Just sort of looking for, it was my intolerance of being bored that made me seek happiness. And that's what I think I want for my kids too. So that would be my argument for right now is... I want to teach them an intolerance of boredom, not a tolerance to it. I remember one day my husband came home from work and my my niece was living with us at the time. And she said, how was work, Uncle Dennis? And he said, work sucked. That's why they had to pay me to show up. (laughs) Yep. But sometimes... Yeah, it's the very nature of it. I mean, I say this, you know, somebody, for example, who, who competed in sports for years and, you know, at the international level, I loved competing. I loved winning. I loved going to practice. I loved every bit about it. But there were things I had to do to succeed I didn't love doing. Getting up at 5.30 a.m. and running sprints uphill made me better and stronger and faster, but I didn't like doing it. And I think no matter how much you want to avoid pain and seek pleasure and not, there is things in life you have to do that you don't want to do. And sometimes you have to do a lot of it to get to the end goal of what you want. And I don't think that lesson is necessarily absent in anything that people do or that that lesson can't be taught in a way you know that's reliant on intrinsic motivation as opposed to being forced to do it so i think children can learn to defer gratification knowing that if you want to be a good athlete you're going to have to do those wind sprints or those exercises or if you want to produce a painting or a work of writing that's high quality that you're going to have to put hours in that are probably fairly tedious and might be kind of a grind But it's the desire to actually have that great painting or be good at the sport, which is the lesson. It's not the lesson that you're just told to be bored or to do a grind and you'll be given a grade at the end, an arbitrary letter or a gold star that doesn't have true meaning. Being that good athlete or being working towards that creative endeavor or whatever is, is going to be a much better reward and a much better lesson for creating 
energetic, passionate, happy, you know, young people. To argue the other side of it, I don't know that schools are any better at teaching people to persevere because I've seen kids playing our games where the first time they can't get a problem, they just give up. Mm -hmm. so I would agree with that. I don't know if, if schools are an answer to that either. It's just something that I'm concerned about. And I guess in my own schooling where I saw the school do it, because like I said, we didn't have grades. We basically had to complete a certain number of projects and do a math and English proficiency exam. This was way before that was a thing, but because we didn't have grades, that was how the school got around it. And once you had completed those math and English proficiency exams, you could take whatever classes you want. And I learned matrix algebra, analytic geometry, because I wanted to do certain things. And so I needed mm -hmm. those certain things. Since I did not homeschool my kids when they were really young, I'm not sure how you would convey that to, say, third grader that you really need to learn how to divide. Yeah, so far, so we radically unschool, which means we don't have a curriculum. We don't emulate school here at home. With our young children, they're pretty much free to do whatever they want. And if they do find subjects or topics that they want to pursue, then we fully support them. So recently, my daughter expressed interest in learning Japanese. And once she did that, we open up the wallet to buy whatever resources that she wants. But as far as the other skills, reading happened later for my son than it would if he went to public school. So he didn't learn how to read since he was given almost no instruction. He didn't learn until he was about eight years old. Of course, but now he reads and writes just fine. Math hasn't been an issue. They can all do without any formal instruction. They, they all add and multiply and divide and subtract. Just the, the sheer nature of commerce itself teaches you a lot of these things. So the ability to save money, to make a purchase, to make change, etc. They probably learn more math through us playing poker. You know, just there's just that, you know, having different denominations of chips and gambling. And all of a sudden you have to have, you know, you have to learn math just to be in the game. So learning those things doesn't seem to be a problem. You know, those, those basic skills, and that's two probably skills that are really, that open up the rest of the world to you, the rest of the knowledge world, the ability to read, and then the ability to do math. And once those are in hand, everything else in the world is either written in a book or in a video or available to find, you know, experts or, or apprenticeships uh, to learn. It's really, we live in kind of an incredible time because the school no longer is a gatekeeper to, to information and knowledge. You know, everyone, just even with your smartphone, you have access to most of the world's intellectual property at this point. There's nothing special, at least in terms of information access, that a public school teacher necessarily has a monopoly on anymore. And that's not to say that they don't have wonderful skills of their own and, and the ability to teach and knowledge, but it's just they no longer have the monopoly on access. All right. Well, I, I think we're, we're running out of time. The one thing I would say about that that I think is maybe different for your family is some of the kids that I see, mm -hmm. they don't have any real positive adults in their life. So that teacher may be or those teachers may be the only positive role models they have, the only one who actually, I mean, obviously you and your wife caring deeply about your children and their education, and you are well-read and articulate, but there are kids that don't have that. And so I think for mm -hmm. them, it would be wonderful if they had this opportunity, but I don't think their parents are necessarily at this point prepared to offer it. I agree with the spirit of that comment there. I think if you were to poll most people, and, and maybe it would be different if we go to the, the very, very low-income segments of society. But if you, I think if you were to pull most people, 
about their education experience. They probably have one or two, maybe three teachers that they found to be inspiring and really sort of changed their mind about how they work and how they think and were true inspirations and mentors. And then, but if you if you take that, you know, those that two or three teachers that really changed your life and you put it up to how many teachers you actually interacted with, which was probably around 14 per year, given the different courses <laughs> through high school, you have a population of about 70 teachers that you worked with and three of them were stunning examples of mentors. That kind of rate, if you apply that to a different industry like dentistry, would be absolutely miserable to think that you had 77 meh teachers and three wonderful ones. Kind of a cynical note to uh, wrap up our podcast, though. Should we find something happy to to end with? Well, yeah, I want to know your tip. Is The number one tip for parents is to think about it. So most of the parents I know have never given their decision, the 15,000-hour decision to put their kids in school, any real thought or research. So most people I know would, would barely purchase a laptop computer or television set without at least reviewing you know, a couple reviews, yet the decision to go to public school is like automatic and thoughtless. And so I would just say before you make that decision is do your research, read a few books. My favorite are from John Taylor Gatto. And just learn the facts, learn, you know, see the criticism, see the, the pros, and just really give it some thought and research. My second tip is to be empathetic with your children, is put yourself in their place and imagine how they feel as your as the alarm goes off at 5.30 in the morning, you know, as they schlep onto the bus and then are forced to sit at a desk and, and uh, indignantly raise their hand because they have to use the bathroom and have to ask for permission. And, and just think of how their state of happiness, their state of whether they're bored or not, you know, their state of whether they enjoy learning, whether they have an appetite for learning, uh, whether they have, you know, their own sense of free agency. Do they have any privacy? Is there is ever a moment during the day where they can just be alone and, you know, not be constantly told what to do? Just imagine feeling that way. Imagine, take yourself back to when you were in elementary school or middle school and just remember how you felt and what maybe, how you could have used that time differently had you been in charge, had, had you been given the freedom to learn what you wanted to do. It's kind of a hard exercise, but it was one of the most valuable for me. Well, that is a great tip. I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I hope everybody has learned a lot more about homeschooling, unschooling. And I would like to just second what Jeff said, that give it some thought. You know, my children, two of them were homeschooled for part of their education, and neither of them turned out to be a serial killer yet. <laughs> Can I just let people know where to find my oh, stuff? Oh, please do. I have about uh, 50 to 60 hours of podcast, 500 years Dot org. That's all spelled out. My book, Rise Above School, is available uh, both in physical copy and Kindle on Amazon.com. So you can find it there. It's 10 bucks, And that's it. That's, that's where you can find my, my works on, on advocacy for home education and my criticisms of public school. Thanks for listening to the More Than Ordinary podcast. For more information, please go to our website, 7generationgames.com. And that's 7 as in the number 7, generationgames.com. 
If you'd like to learn more about math and history or increase your vocabulary while at the same time having fun, you can purchase our games at 7generationgames.com slash buy. You can also donate and help a much-deserving student. And as always, please tell a friend and don't forget to rate us on iTunes. It's never too late to be more than ordinary.